we are uh, on part two of our series, So Emotional. Can you pull me down just a little bit? Thanks. Um, and honestly, this is just sort of a fun way to talk about some really serious emotions uh, that we all struggle with. And today we're going to talk, tackle the emotions of worry and anxiety. Worry and anxiety. Uh, and so I want to approach this by asking three questions or answering three questions. The first one is, who worries? Why do we worry? And how do we deal with worry? So to answer the first question, let me ask another question. Um, who in here today never, ever worries? Right, exactly. We all worry, right? Every single one of us worries to some degree or another. And you might have some different um, degrees of worry, right? Um, can you bring up the next couple slides? And the one after that? There you go. Yeah, so one of us, we have different, there's different degrees of worry, right? So like this one on the left might be you. Like you're just a, an average worrier, right? There's just stuff that you worry about and you know you worry about. But you might take it to the next level, right? Where it's more than just, I mean, I mean, you're, you're, I mean you're a world-class worrier, right? You worry about your worry, right? So it just debilitates you. Um, or you could even take it to the next level to where it just total, your worry leads you to total anxiety, right? So there's different degrees of worry, but then we have different ways of dealing with it. Uh, for some of us, we respond to it with denial. You want to bring up the next one? There we go. <laughs> with denial, yeah. Um, for example, if the source of your worry is a personal relationship, then you just come over here and you bury yourself in your work so you don't have to deal with that personal relationship or think about that unpleasant relationship. If the source of your worry is work, then you come over here and bury yourself in a personal relationship so you don't have to think about the unpleasantness at work. And then if those things don't work, then we have all kinds of self-medicators, don't we? Like alcohol and drugs and binge-watching TV and the list just goes on and on. And so you'll do anything you can to keep from thinking about that thing that's causing you to worry when what's really going on is that you're in denial about that thing and not really dealing with it in a healthy way. For others of, it, of us, we respond to worry with self-reliance. And, um, and so when you experience worry, you just go into this mode where you're like, I got this. I can fix this. I can make this go away. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need God's help. I am going to fix this, right? But eventually that all comes crashing down when you finally realize how dependent you really are on other people and especially on God. So we all struggle with worry. It just looks different for uh, some of us. Now, I want to address the question, why do we worry? Um, where does worry come from? A lot of us think, well, of course I know where worry comes from. It comes from this problem here, and it comes from that problem there. Oh, yeah, and that problem over there. And so you have this set of problems that you think that's where your worry comes from. And if you can just eliminate those problems, then you won't have to worry. The reality is, though, problems come and go, don't, don't they? Problem, the same problems you have today are not the same, or the, the problem, problems you have today are not the same problems you're going to have two months from now. Um, so problems come and go, but our worry seems to stay constant, doesn't it? 
Um, so maybe it's a little bit deeper than worry just coming from a certain set of problems. Most psychology experts agree that worry comes from a combination of two things, which I put on your outline as an equation. A heightened sense of vulnerability plus a diminished sense of power equals worry. Regardless of the circumstances you face, when something happens in your life that makes you feel more vulnerable and you feel like you have less and less control and power over that situation, then it always leads to an opportunity to worry. And because problems come and go, this equation sort of remains at a constant for us. Does that make sense? Okay. So we all struggle with it. And in a general sense, we know where it comes from. The real question, though, is how do we deal with it? And so with the time we have left, I want to talk about God's prescription for worry. God actually addresses um, this subject of worry all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And he teaches us how to treat worry when it shows up in our lives, right? Because it's never going to go away. We just have to know how to treat it. The first way is this. Stop trying to control what you can't control. In Psalm 46, we see a verse that has been printed on probably countless coffee mugs, right, and plaques. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Now, for some of you, that idea of being still (laughs) is nearly impossible for you. Right, because you're a mover and a shaker, right? You've always got to be moving, you always got to be doing, you always got to be moving the ball forward in some way. But be still in the original language doesn't mean to do nothing. The Hebrew word translated be still means cease striving. Cease striving. As a matter of fact, some English versions of the Bible actually translate it this way cease striving and um, know that I am God. Um, even though most of us learned it, you know, as be still. And there's this picture that goes along with this, this idea of cease striving. And it looks like this. It's like you've got your hands hanging on to whatever it is you're worried about, and your fists are clenched and you're hanging on to it. Cease striving means to just let go and let your hands drop. Try that for, try that for me. Think about what you're what you worry about, and clench onto it now. Cease striving. Just let your hands drop. Okay. Um, and I know that uh, that kind of seems counterintuitive because you have to feel like you need to remain in control to some degree. But the idea here is in the midst of a world that feels like it's spinning out of control, you need to lean into the only one who's ever really had control. Amen. Okay, so, and see, if you buy into the illusion that you have control uh, of everything, um, when something starts to spin out of control, um, despite your best efforts to keep it under control, then all of a sudden, you're just left with worry and anxiety, right? And if you think any amount of worry is going to help, it doesn't. It doesn't, and yet we still do it, right? We all know it doesn't help, Um Uh, It just doesn't. The only thing that helps is trusting the one who is really in control. 
That's why be still is followed by the next phrase, and know that I am God. The only thing that's going to give you the power to cease striving is that next phrase, know that I am God. Knowing that he is God brings an implication with it, doesn't it? Knowing that he is God means realizing we are not God, right? And I know that we know that in our heads, uh, that we're not God, but when we try to control that which only God has control of, then our actions say differently, right? The only way to be still or cease striving is to know that he is God, that he is in control. See, we don't cease striving because we know the outcome, but because we trust the God who knows the outcome. We don't cease striving because we know the outcome, but because we trust the God who knows the outcome, right? Romans 8, 28 says this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, how many of you could say, that verse describes me. I know that I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. Okay, good. Um, Well, then, if that's true, you have to know that God causes everything to work out for good, don't you? I mean, that's part of what comes along with it. And I love the, the use of absolute terms in this verse, right? Like, how many of you, when you get into a fight with um, your wife or, or, or someone, or, or your husband or someone, um, you, you tend to start using absolute terms, right? Like, you always, or you never. Anybody do that besides me? Okay, good. <laughs> um, but it always gets us in trouble, right? It never really helps the, the argument, right? Um, um, but when God uses absolute terms... There's a reason. It's because they're absolute. Okay? We use absolute terms all the time, and it's not, they're not absolute. But when God uses absolute terms, they are absolute. And there are two of them here in this verse. Notice this verse doesn't say, and we hope that God causes, something, causes some things to work together for the good. Right? It's, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love God. Where does this knowing come from? It comes from trusting him implicitly. It comes from ceasing striving and trusting him implicitly. Because it comes from being still and knowing that he is God, right? And it's not just some things that work together for good. It's what? everything if that's truly what we know is there ever a need for us to worry no there isn't so stop trying to control what you can't control the second thing god prescribes for us is look back at all the times god came through for you um if you have your bibles turn over to uh, second chronicles chapter 20 second chronicles 20 so about halfway through the Old Covenant period, um, this was somewhere around 880 B.C., I think. 
Um, but halfway through the Old Testament period, there was one of the kings of Judah by the name of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of Judah. There were several kings who weren't so good. He was a good king because he taught everyone to follow after God. Um, but one day, three other nations gang up on Judah and declare war on the nation of Judah. And there's this vast army approaching. And we pick up the story in Second Chronicles 20, verse 3. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news that this vast army was on the way and begged the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new new courtyard at the temple of the Lord. He prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. Oh, our God, did you not... And notice what, he, what starts happening here. Oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? Your people settled here and built this temple in honor to your name. They said, whenever we are faced with any such calamity, such as war, plague, famine, we can come to stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you to save us, and you will hear us and rescue us. What did he just do there? He looked back at, all, at the times that God came through, right? Verse 10. And now see what the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir are doing. You would not let our ancestors invade those nations when Israel fled, left Egypt. So they went around them and did not destroy them. Now see how they reward us. For they have come to throw us out of your land, which you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We don't know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives, and children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name, his name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, and a Levite who was a descendant of Asaph. Okay, we got all through those names. Verse 15, he said, Listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem... Listen to King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. You will find them coming up through the land of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. But you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still, and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. What an awesome story, isn't it? I love the story because not only are we given a great example of looking back and an opportunity where worry could overtake us, 
we can get to see God's response to their faith, right? And God loves responding to our faith by, by proving himself time and time again that he is in control and that he's got our backs. I mean, how do you think this story would have turned out if they didn't do that, if they just huddled in a, in a mass and worried and feared? I mean, it would just, all we could do is speculate on how the story would turn out. But uh, I think the situation would have been much different because there was no faith. There would have been no faith for God to respond to, right? And because of their faith in God, God responded in this awesome way. They didn't even have to go out and fight. Where most of the times they had to go out and, and, and fight and God would give the, the battle to them. But in here, because they responded to God by looking back and counting him faithful, he responded to their faith by just to stand there and watch. It was pretty awesome. Um, and so what I know about my own experience and watching other people go through worry is this, is that worry has the ability to erase God's past faithfulness. It doesn't erase his past faithfulness from history, right? It still happened, but it erases it from our minds, doesn't it? When all we do is worry, are you thinking about God's past faithfulness? You're not. Looking, looking back on God's past faithfulness helps stir our faith to be able to trust him for today and for the future, just like Jehoshaphat did and everyone else there that day. So you have to find ways to celebrate God's faithfulness of the past to be able to trust him with your future. Ryan did a great job a couple months ago talking about this, about setting up altars and, and, and celebrating and, and having, setting up some kind of reminders of where God came through and God proved himself faithful. We have to set those reminders up. Um, and if you missed that message, you can find it online on our website. Okay, so you have to find ways to celebrate God's, God's faithfulness of the past to be able to trust him with your future. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but worry, it really is the opposite of faith, isn't it? Um, and scripture tells us that without faith, it is, an, it is what? It's impossible to please God, isn't it? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if worry is the opposite of faith, we could just as easily say it this way. With worry, it is impossible to please God. Because we are not responding in faith. See, worry isn't just personality trait, right? Like like most every family can identify the worrier, and a lot of families will say, well, that, you know, that's just the way they are. No. Worry is not a personality trait. Worry is a serious faith issue. It's a spiritual issue, and it eats away at our faith. And God tells us how to respond to worry. It, it's always You're always going to have opportunities for worry. It's never going to go away. But he tells us how to respond to it, right? Um, so God's prescription for worry is to stop trying to control what you can't control. Look back at all the times that God came through for you so your faith can be built up and inspired. And then 
turn everything you worry about into a prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says this, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Here again, God is using absolute terms, and he uses them for a reason. And I think the reason many of us struggle so much with worry is that we don't take these absolutes seriously. He said, don't worry about anything. He didn't say, don't worry about the minor things. He didn't say, don't worry about the big things. He said, don't worry about anything. Nothing. That's an absolute that, if we're honest, we're not taking seriously. Then he says, pray about what? Everything. That's another absolute that I know we don't take seriously. But what if we started to take it seriously? What if every time you sensed worry coming, you immediately turned that worry into a prayer? I mean, how awesome would it be to not waste any more time in your life worrying? Not to mention having a much better prayer life, right? I mean, think about all the times, how, how, many, how much time you spend a day worrying. If, you, if all that was flipped into a prayer, I mean, we'd be praying all day, right? Um, <laughs> um, so I think our, our great, single greatest barrier to having a great prayer life is we don't take this, ser- this phrase seriously, pray about everything, Right? Just out of curiosity, how many of you would say, I have an awesome prayer life? One, two, maybe? Okay. Um, yeah, most of us, if, if you know, someone were to ask you how you feel about your prayer life, you'd be like, eh, it's okay, not great. And then if I were to ask you, well, why isn't your prayer life great? You know, is it because you never pray? And you would probably say, well, no. That's not the reason. I, I, I mean, I, there are times that I do pray. But it, whenever I start to pray, my mind just kind of wanders off, right? Like you start to pray, and 30 seconds later, you find yourself thinking about something else, right? So what happens to us is we have these constant stream of thoughts just running through our heads. You have thoughts going through your heads right now. Some of you are thinking, what are we going to have for lunch? Or maybe this message is going too long, right? You have thoughts going through your head right now. We have this constant stream of thoughts. I do too. And honestly, most of them aren't real spiritual, right? Like I have thoughts about my work day or things I have to accomplish and thoughts about other people and thoughts about an upcoming meeting. And so when I go to pray, I typically don't pray about those thoughts because they don't seem very spiritual. I feel like I have to pray about spiritual things, right? But then all of a sudden, when I try to start to pray about spiritual things, my mind wanders off to the stream of thoughts running through my head. Is that true for anybody else or am I alone here? Okay, thank God. Okay, so we then, we then sort of conclude that we stink at prayer, right? Well, what if it's not that we stink at prayer? but just that you haven't taken God seriously and prayed about everything, including all the stuff running through your head. 
instead of praying about just the things you think God wants you to pray for, what would happen if we started to pray about everything? If we took that seriously, what would happen if we started to pray about everything? Well, for starters, we'd be talking to God a whole lot more than we do now, right? So maybe this is the key to not only a better prayer life, but to overcoming worry. Pray for that thing that is on your mind, not for what you think you should pray for. Pray for what's on your mind, not what you think you should pray for. I mean, if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably admit that 80 to 90% of the thoughts running through our mind are stuff that we're worrying about, right? It makes it, it, it's this, this constant stream of thoughts, I'd say 80 to 90% are, the, are our worries just constantly running through our mind. God tells us, turn our worries into prayers. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. I mean, if we really took this seriously, then we should treat every worry as an invitation from God. Like, come on over here. Let's, let's, let's talk about this, right? The Apostle Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 5, 7. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. I thought about doing sort of a visual illustration um, this morning by asking one of you to carry around a 50-pound bag of sand through the entirety of the service um, just to, so we could see what happens to a person <laughs> who carries something they're not intended to carry for a long period of time. Um, but I love you all too much to pick somebody to do that. Um, I think we can all imagine with each one of us, what would happen if we carried a 50-pound bag of sand for an hour? Um, you know, we'd be, you know, by the time we reached this point of the service, we'd probably be slumped over, our back would be hurting, our, our joints would be hurting, our muscles would be crying out for some relief. Um, not to mention that none of us would be able to do what we were created to do because we were trying to do what we weren't created to do, right? God didn't create us to carry around a 50-pound bag of sand all day. He created us for other things. But when we're carrying something around that we shouldn't be carrying, we can't do what he created us to do, right? The same is true with our worries. You aren't designed to carry them. So give them to God. Turn your worries into prayer, all right? So God's prescription for worry is to stop trying to control what you can't control. Look back at all the times God came through for you so your faith can be inspired and built up. Turn everything that you worry about into a prayer. And then, number four, view your life with an eternal perspective. View your life with an eternal perspective. Perspective. If you went to the doctor tomorrow and he or she said, I have really bad news for you, you only have 30 days to live. You can keep doing everything you want to do, but 30 days from now, your heart's just going to stop, right? You're not going to be bedridden or nothing. 
But for the next 30 days, that's all you got, right? And on day 30, your heart's just going to stop. Just, you've just worn your heart out, so it's just going to stop. Um, if you had only 30 days to live, how many of your worries do you think would just completely drop off your radar? Right? Like, I mean, I think we'd really be surprised at all the things that we worry about that we wouldn't worry about anymore. Like, you know, what that coworker said to you in anger. Or, you know, the loan that your friend has failed to repay. Or the time your boss overlooked you for the promotion that you should have got. Or, you know, the fact that someone else got the office win- the window with the office. The office with the window, yeah. Or, or, or how many of us just worry about what other people think all the time, right? Would you worry about that? If you only had 30 days to live? Heck no. You wouldn't care what anybody thought of you. Right? If you had 30 days to live, these sorts of worries would just have have no importance to you. Savoring life, squeezing the very most out of each and every precious day would be far more important to you, wouldn't it? So let me ask this question. Is life any less precious just because we don't know how much time is left? No. Not only that, there's so much more to life than this life. And we get so focused on this temporary life that we lose sight of eternity so often. And even when your life just turns bad, Scripture reminds us that it's not worth worrying about. Romans 8.18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's nothing, if you have an eternal perspective, there's really nothing to worry about. Most of you probably don't know the name Horatio Spafford, but he was um, a successful attorney in Chicago in the 1800s. He was a devout Christian. He was a a friend of D.L. Moody. Um, He was a, a successful lawyer. He was really smart with his money, and he bought all kinds of property in Chicago, and, and he had all these investment properties in, in Chicago. Um, but in 1871, his son, I think he was three years old, his three- or four-year-old son, he lost his son to scarlet fever. His son got scarlet fever, and, and his son died. The same year, the Great Fire of Chicago broke out. I don't know if you know your history, but it's like three square miles, like thousands and thousands of acres of the city were totally destroyed by this fire. And he lost all of his investment properties. He lost them all. A couple years later, him and his wife, and and he has four other daughters, they decided to go on holiday, and they wanted to go to England because his friend D.L. Moody was going to be speaking in England. 
And so he went ahead and set his wife and kids ahead of him. He had to stay behind for some business, and he was going to join them later. Well, a few days later, he gets a telegram that the ship that his wife and daughters were on collided with another ship, and all four of his daughters died. His wife was the only one who survived. And so he boards the ship to join his wife, And as he's sailing over the spot where his daughters died, he wrote the song, It Is Well. And this is what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. That line has so much more context, doesn't it, knowing that story. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. The second verse goes like this. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. There's a couple more verses he writes about sin and and Christ's solution for sin. But the fifth verse is this. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Here's a man who, in the midst of horrible loss in this life, was able to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And why was it well? Because there's more to life than this life. And the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. So in light of eternity, is there really anything worth worrying about? I think the answer is an obvious, resounding no. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to do something a little different. Everybody, please stand. I want you to take the position, that that picture that I gave you of worry, by clenching your fists together. And I want you to imagine all the things that you worry about. You're hanging on to them. Some of you are world-class warriors, so your fists are clenched tighter than everybody else. And they're just shaking because your fists are clenched so tight. You just think about all those things you worry about. And as I pray, I want you to, to do what Scripture says to cease striving, to just let go and let your hands drop, okay? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, there's not a person in here who doesn't worry. 
And I think for a lot of us, it's just because we don't take your word seriously. I pray that you would give us a revelation today, God, of how worry just eats away at our faith. How it's crippling us in being able to trust you. I pray that you would give us a revelation of how when we spend time worrying, we can't exercise faith in you. We can't even look back and count you faithful. But Lord, I pray for everyone right now that they're able to do exactly what your word says and to be still, to cease striving and know that you are God. Lord, you're in control. You're in control of our lives and all you ask for us is to trust you in that. To let go and trust you, God. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to stop trying to control what we can't control. I pray that you would help us to be like Jehoshaphat and those in Judah that day who looked back and counted you faithful and express their faith in you because they were able to look back and you responded in such an amazing way, God. I don't think, I I think you want to do that in our lives as well, God. You have, you love responding to faith in just amazing ways, God. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us, God, that when we sense a worry coming on us, that we would immediately turn it into a prayer and that we would take seriously the verse that says, pray about everything. That we would stop trying to be spiritual and praying about things we think you want us to pray for, but that we would just pray about everything because you love us and care for us and you want us to cast all those things on you because we weren't designed to carry them. And then I pray, God, that you would help us to have an eternal perspective. Help us to not lose sight of eternity. Because when we take into consideration how brief this life is, there's really nothing in this life for us to worry about. thank you, God, for your help in this. I thank you that your spirit is going to remind us of these things through through this coming week and through every week after that. Let, let this be the turning point of our life, God. Help us, God, to stop worrying. Just trust you. Pray for these things in Jesus' name.